heaven. As we now come to your word, I pray that you would help us. There's so much in us that works against the hearing of your word and receiving from it uh, various situations of life, emotions, habits, uh, our sin, Satan who stands against us. So I pray that you would enable us to focus and hear and that all that is true of Jesus will stick and it will be life to us. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Hebrews in chapter 9. Hebrews in chapter 9. I want to read beginning with verse uh, 23. Hebrews in chapter 9, please. Hear the word of God. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, historically, this time of Advent, as we've been saying, is a time to focus our attention on the incarnation of Jesus. But really, it's to celebrate or to think about the advents of our Lord Jesus. Not simply in his first coming, but his second. They are inexorably tied. His first coming, as the author of Hebrews puts it, to put away sin. His second coming to save all those who eagerly wait for him. So when we consider this time of Advent, it isn't just to think about the first coming of Jesus, Jesus born in Bethlehem, but to, to walk it all through, all the way through. And it's interesting that the author of Hebrews says that Jesus' first appearing, his first Advent, came at the end of the ages. Now the question is often asked, are we in the end times? And, and the Bible never puts it that way. For the Bible sees the coming of Jesus as the beginning of the last days. You might remember that when uh, Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached on that, that time of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit after Jesus had ascended and so forth, that he quotes the prophet Joel who says that in the last days what you're seeing is going to happen. And so the author of Hebrews says in the middle of verse 26, but as it is he, that is Jesus, appeared once for all at the end of the ages. And so the end of the ages has, has sort of two bookends, if you will. The first appearing of Jesus and the second appearing of Jesus. So if anybody asks you, if, you're, if we're in the end days, end times, say, well, of course, we've been that way for quite some time. But of course, this is the end of the ages. Because it isn't simply the end of the ages, but Jesus' first appearing was the climax, if you will, of the ages. For what he did was to put away sin. 
And you see, sin is the, is the problem. Sin is the cause of all misery for human beings. There's no escaping the misery of life, the difficulties of life, and even the difficulties of death and all that comes after without dealing with sin. You might remember that the ages first began with creation. And then our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, sinned. That is, they knew what God had required of them and they rebelled against it. You see, we're created in the image of God. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, meaning that they were to reflect Him. If you look in a mirror, that's your image reflected. It's your physical image reflected. And Adam and Eve were not so much to reflect the physical image of God because God is spirit, but the very character of God. And on the one hand, to... to, to reflect his image to glorify him in that sense is to say and to know that God deserves our complete honor and our joyful obedience. That's one of the ways that we reflect his character. See, when an important person walks into a room, you give them respect. You're reflecting their character. You're reflecting who they are relative to everyone else. So you give them respect. Well, in the presence of God, how is it that we reflect His character, who He is? We do that by bowing before Him. We do that by submitting to Him. We do that by joyfully worshiping Him. We do that by by looking to Him to, to, to lay out the course of our lives and to follow Him. And Adam and Eve didn't do that. They were created to, but they didn't. They rebelled against Him. And not only that but we're to reflect His character in our lives in the sense that we're to be, in some sense, a mirror for Him. That is, people are to be able to look at us and see the character of God. And certainly in the way that we submit to Him, but also in the way that we live. That we're to love, because He is love. And you see, when we sin, we turn against God. And in the midst of that sin, there is a separation that comes from Him. And so our focus is no longer upon God, but becomes very self-focused, self-centered. We no longer look to God, we look to ourselves. We no longer seek His glory and honor, but our own. And so rather than turn and love Him and turn and love others, we spend our time evaluating life as to whether or not we've been loved by others. It's all self-focused. It isn't in a relationship whether or not I've contributed anything to you, but whether or not you've contributed something to me. The question is always, was it good for you? As opposed to, did you help anyone else? And that seems so natural to us. Of course that's the way we would evaluate a relationship. Has it been helpful to me? But you see, that's the self-focusedness. Love means I'm worried about you, interestingly enough. And that I'm to be considerate of you. And that's the driving focus force of my life. Self-centeredness means I'm worried about whether my needs are being met. Whereas others' focusedness, love is, am I meeting anybody else's need? Am I assisting them? Am I helping them? I mean, that's the nature, you see, of love. Those are the kinds of things that we're looking for. Uh, Love seeks to honor another, but yet self-focusedness seeks to be honored and affirmed by others. The big 
difficulty in life is, am I receiving enough affirmation? The question should be, am I giving it? Am I affirming others? Am I honoring them? I mean, that's the outwardness. But you see, sin brings this self-focusedness and it ultimately causes great misery because it, it destroys relationships. Because you see, when you're self-focused, you become uh, what the Bible would call a keeper of records of wrongs against you. You become very aware of all the wrongs against you. Love, the Bible says, doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Why? Because it's not that interested in the wrongs done against us. But, but I'm just, you know, I'm a guy. I know what this is like. Uh, there, there was a person who wrote a book about ministry once and said in his life that it took 20 positive comments to him as a pastor to eliminate one negative comment to him as a pastor. And that's probably true. And that's sin. <laughs> I mean, we shouldn't be that way. We shouldn't be that sensitive about these things. But we are. The truth of the matter is, you can look back in your life, I bet, and remember almost all of the hurts and not remember so much all of the positive things. That's just, we're a keeper of, because we're self-interested so much. We're self-focused. That's, that's sin. And that's the misery that it causes. <sighs> that's painful live that way. Uh, Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples, he said, I'm saying these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy might be made complete. And what he was telling them is to love each other, you see. Because love brings joy. Self-centeredness brings misery. Sin brings self-centeredness. It brings misery. It just does. It causes us to be mean to each other, to slander each other, to gossip about each other, to say things about each other so we can make ourselves look better. It causes us to lose our temper towards each other, to be manipulative, to be unjust, to be unkind. I mean, because we're self-focused, not others-focused. Sometimes we do this intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, but the point is it causes misery in relationships. We see it socially. I mean, let's face it, you read the newspaper, and it's filled with all of the problems of sin. If there wasn't sin, there wouldn't be anything to write about hardly in the newspaper. It's all about conflict. It's all about difficulty. What makes, you know, again, I'm preaching to the choir. This is not a big deal. You, you know this stuff. But what makes the headlines? It's, it's, it's the horrible stuff. Always the result, at least almost always, the result of sin. Because even if it's death, death is the result of sin. The death isn't, didn't enter the human race because of weakness in our physical bodies. Death didn't enter the race because of the onslaught of an aging process that would cause us eventually to die. Death entered the human race because of sin. Because when we rebelled against God, we were separated from that life. And sin then becomes cursed. It be I mean, death then becomes cursed. It becomes judgment. And we all experience death. And for some, it comes as an aging process by the aging process, but, but the aging process doesn't bring death. Death brings the aging process. Sin brings the aging process. Sin's the cause of it. So the aging process happens because of sin. Death comes because of sin. And some die before the aging process even, and that still is the result of sin in the context of the world because sin in that sense is not natural. I mean, death in that sense is not natural. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, I uh, hate to quote him because he's alive, 
but he's a pretty good God. But he writes this, and this is a long quote, but listen to this. It's important to hear, I think. He says, moreover, in Scripture, death is regarded as part of the curse of sin. Death is not what we sometimes mistakenly suggest it is, a blessing, a release, a peaceful end. All of these may be found by the Christian in and through death, but they're in fact contrary to the true nature of death. That is, the true nature of death isn't that. Christ enables that ultimately, but the true nature of death is something else. For death is disintegration. It is the breaking of a union which God created in and of itself. It is an ugly, destructive thing. It is the last enemy. How is this so? Because death severs us from those we love. It breaks the cords that have joined us physically, mentally, spiritually to others. It deprives us of the most precious possessions we have on earth. The death of others separates us from them and places them in realms with which we are unable to communicate. My death means that I leave behind those to whom I've committed the whole of my life in love and devotion. In a sense, I'm being torn from part of myself and being taken from husband or wife, son or daughter, parent or brother. There is yet another surrendering in death. Not only am I to be separated from part of myself in a sense by departing from my loved ones, I am myself to be broken, body from spirit. This tent in which I've sojourned must be left behind, that is his body. The only instrument I've ever had by which to know myself and communicate with others will be separated from my eternal spirit, contrary to nature. That is, naturally speaking, we're to be body and soul. We're to be material and immaterial. This is who I am. If my body goes, I'm not all quite me, you say. But at death that happens. Our body dies and our spirits, souls live on. And he says, that's a disruption that, that we really can't get, our, get a handle on, but it it's something, I think, intuitively that we understand. He says, this is a divorce of magnitude beyond my frail understanding. Simply as a prospect, it's a terrifying one. It's a curse. That is why, when our Lord contemplated death as it is in itself, he said that his heart was filled with sorrow. The expressions which describe his psychological condition suggest that his whole being shuddered at the prospect of what was to take place in his own experience. The language used to describe his Gethsemane experience is of a confused, restless, half-distracted state which is produced by physical derangement or by mental distress as grief, shame, disappointment. No wonder Martin Luther commented, no man ever feared death like this man. So we discover the real nature of death only when we look at Christ. In other men, we see varying responses from fear to carelessness, sorrow to glad anticipation, and these responses are largely determined by the prospect men have beyond death. But when our Lord contemplates death itself, he recoils at the sight. When he sees what it is that he is carrying on his own shoulders by dying, he asks God that such a cup might pass from him. We should not therefore lose sight of what death itself is. It is the destroyer of life, which God gave to man in his infinite love for him. It is therefore not only our last enemy, but God's enemy also. And so you see, sin brings this misery to life. And there is no living until it's gone. Until somehow it's dealt with. Because even in the self-centeredness of life and all the ministry, misery that that brings, it still is going to bring death. 
And not only physical death, which is horrible to contemplate even in that sense, but spiritual death as well. There is a judgment to come. I mean, notice how the author of Hebrews puts it. He says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. There is God at the end of all this. At the end of separation of body and soul. At the, at the end of the ages when the judgment comes. There's God at this. The just one, the righteous one to whom we must stand before. And so you see, how can a human being really live with that on his mind? And of course we can't live with that on our mind, so somehow we have to deal with that. So, so people create all kinds of theologies and all kinds of philosophies in order to put God out of the picture. And so if we can only get God out of the picture, then, then we can suppress this truth and we can live in such a way that, that clouds all of that and perhaps we can have a measure of life and enjoyment in the midst of that. Because we can't face this. Somehow sin has to be dealt with. And of course those philosophies don't really deal with it. It just sort of covers it over. The stark reality, the sobering reality comes soon enough. But the great news, you see, is in the end of the ages, there was this one who had been promised to come, who actually came. And he came to put away sin. Again, notice how the author of Hebrews puts it. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And that's what Jesus did. Again, this is the gospel. Most of you, I suspect, know this. You anticipate what I'm about to say. Uh, He put away sin. What does it mean to put it away? It means to annul it. It means to cancel it. It means to bring it to naught. Which is a huge thing. Because you see, prior to the putting away of sin, sin defines us. Sin holds us in bondage. It holds us in bondage not only to the death that's to come, but it holds us in bondage to this self-centeredness and this being separated from God and all the misery that that brings in the context of this life and even the life of come, the life to come. There we are, set in this. And so to say it's going to cancel that is a huge thing. That's why I think in Scripture one of the primary uh, metaphors or illustrations of the effects of sin is slavery. Imagine yourself to be a person in ancient Egypt sometime during the 400 years prior to the advent of Moses. The Israelites were enslaved. If you were born into that situation, you would be born a slave. You would understand that though you were to obey your father and mother, uh, there was another group over you, the Egyptians, who really had say over your life. And you were in that situation and you couldn't get out of that situation and that would impact everything in your life. It would simply define the way that you live. It would impact your choices. It would impact your ambitions. It would impact how you thought about yourself. It would impact your relationships. It would impact everything. There were certain people you couldn't talk to, certain people you could talk to, certain things you could do, couldn't do. All of that determined for you because of the fact that you were born in that situation, born in that slavery condition enslaved bondage. And then Moses comes. And that changes everything. 
Because Moses comes and he takes you out of that situation and he frees you from all of that and now your life is redefined. You're redefined as a person who is now free from that control. And your decisions would change. The way you thought about yourself would change. Your relationships would change. Where you could come and go would change. All of that would change because now you're outside of that bondage, that slavery. Well, it's the same kind of thing here, you see. When Jesus says he comes to to put away sin, he says, I'm going to take the power and the penalty of sin and I'm going to cancel it. I'm going to put that away. I'm going to annul that. I'm going to bring it to naught. It will no longer have a claim over you. That changes everything. He says, I'm going to break the bondage of the self-centeredness. And I'm going to open your eyes. And I'm going to enable you to see God. Obviously, not a visible seeing of God, but it's a spiritual seeing, perceiving, understanding, relating to God. I'm going to put it away. I'm going to cancel that sin that caused that bondage. And I'm going to take away its penalty as well. So I'm going to free you from the bondage in terms of free you from the penalty of sin, judgment. And I'm going to free you from its effects even now to turn you from yourself and your self-focus to turn you to God. That's what it means. He came to put away sin. And of course, we know how he did that. He did that by his self-sacrifice, which is precisely what we need. Notice how the author of Hebrews puts it again in verse 27. It says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Now, it's as far as I want to go right now. Because you see the comparison that he's making. He's saying something happens to us, something happened to Christ. And it isn't just that he does the same things we do. It isn't just that he experienced the same things we experience. But his experience of what we experience redefines our whole lives. He does it for us in such a way that our life is changed and redefined and remade. It isn't just that we go through a river and Jesus goes through the river. It's that when he goes through a river, he builds a bridge to keep us from drowning. And so it says, it's appointed unto man once to die. You only die once. Some will have the good fortune, I think, perhaps, of not dying at all. That's alive when Jesus returns. I used to have a good friend in Denver who would look at the sky every day and if it was a blue sky, he would be disappointed because the scripture says that Jesus is going to return in the same way that he left, which was in a cloud. And so he was always looking for clouds. And so when I would see him, he'd say, you see that cloud up there the other day? Wasn't that great? You know. But we know, you see, that he puts away sin by his self Sacrifice. We're going to die once. Jesus died once. He didn't have to die over and over again like the old lambs in the Old Testament and the goats in the Old Testament and the sacrifices in the Old Testament because, you see, they didn't really do anything, those sacrifices, except point to him. 
They didn't do anything except remind the people of sin and the need for a Savior. They didn't do anything other than remind the people that God had promised to forgive their sins by the sacrifice of one who was to come. So when Jesus came, his blood did it all. So I often say Jesus' blood flows forwards and backwards. It covers the sins of all believers. The old covenant, the new covenant. And so that blood is what was important. And so you see, when Jesus comes, when Jesus came, and he gave himself, he died. But in his dying, he offered himself. And while it's appointed for us once to die, God's appointment, he's sovereign over all of that. We simply know it will come. He's the one who numbers our days. Moses wrote a psalm, and he wrote, teach us to number our days, that we might be wise. There was a great quote by an old 18th century theologian who said something like this. He said, I promise you this, that when a man knows that he's going to be hanged in a fortnight, it focuses his mind wonderfully. appointed unto a man once to die and then judgment well Jesus came to offer himself to die and in his dying face judgment to bear the sins of many so that we would be free and so that's the point that's how he put away sin he dealt with it he said okay I'm going to take its penalty I'm going to take its power and I'm going to destroy it by my own self-sacrifice, by my own death. Now, there's a number of questions we could ask about this. We could ask, for instance, why is it that if Jesus' death put away sin and that death is the result of sin, why is it that we still must die? I mean, if his death did it, if his death put away sin, and sin is the cause of death, and I believe in Jesus, therefore... My sin has been put away, it's been dealt with, it's been borne by him. Then, then why must I go through that experience of, of physical death at all? Well, on the one hand, the easy answer is because God said so. And it remains, but it seems to remain as a pointer to the horror of sin. To remind us all of sin. And so while physical death isn't taken away, while we go through that as believers, the difference is that there's something added to it. That we can be as the Apostle Paul was when he said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. How could that be? How could it be that anyone could say such a thing even after we read the horrors of death? And what it was like. Well, it isn't that death is all that easy necessarily. But it's because of what we know to be true. What Christ has done. That he's taken our sin. And the scripture says that the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Meaning that what makes death so stinging is the fact that we know that there's judgment at the end ultimately. No matter what else can be said about death, the ultimate is this judgment that's to come. And we know that Jesus has taken out the stinger. He's dealt with the law. He's obeyed it, taken its penalty, so that we can live, so that we can face death in that regard. He's come. And you see, we can see 
the wonderful impact of the work of Christ in his coming, in his life. For instance, the prophet Isaiah speaks of Jesus as he's to come. Isaiah chapter 61. And he puts it like this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up, bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison, uh, to, an opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress of a headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. He's saying, listen, Isaiah is saying that when this Messiah comes, he's going to break the bond of sin. He's going to break you out of slavery. He's going to give you freedom. Freedom from the fear of life and all the bad things that can happen. Freedom from the fear of death. Because you know that he's taken your sin and is with you. Before that, in Isaiah chapter 35, the prophet writes this about the coming of Jesus, verse 5. It says, when he comes, this Messiah, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool in the thirsty ground, springs of water in the haunts of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. And they shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. And they shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. We see in the coming of Jesus the misery of sin. God. He gave sight to the blind. He opened the ears of the deaf. He enabled those who are mute to speak. He enabled those who are lame to walk. He raised the dead. He stilled the storm. Could you imagine how much damage could have been done by that storm on the day that Jesus was with his disciples? He was with a group of fishermen, a group of people who were very accustomed to being on that particular body of water. And they were very accustomed, no doubt, because of their experience, to all kinds of weather that could take place. And they were frightfully afraid. They were desperately afraid. These tough, rough fishermen that had experienced all kinds of things. Could you imagine the damage that a storm like that could have done? Do you understand our, even our weather patterns that bring death are the result of a sinful curse on the earth? Or a curse on the earth because of sin. And Jesus stilled even that. So you see... In his coming, he put away all of that. And though we experience death still, and we experience difficulties in life still, they remind us of the horror of sin to send us right to Christ. 
as the only one who put away sin, as the only one who deals with sin, as the only one who takes away the misery from sin. And we're to go to Him, you see, in all of these things. You say, well, if that's true, if He came to put away sin, and I still need to live through some of the miseries of life to point me to Him and encourage me to trust in Him and even have to go through death in order to place my trust in Him so that I can see the horrors of sin and and flee to Christ. What about this judgment? says, so it's appointed unto man once to die. And then judgment. Does that mean everybody? Yes, it does. The scriptures are clear that all go through this judgment. When does that take place, you might say? Well, at the second coming of Jesus, at his appearance. We say, what happens before then? I mean, does that mean we just kind of hang around and wait for Jesus to return? And there is no judgment? There's no heaven and hell before then. No, the scripture seems to say that our destiny has already been determined and and even known. Uh, You remember the parable that Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus, not Lazarus who was raised from the dead, but Lazarus must have been a common name. In those days, the rich man and Lazarus. Do you remember that the rich man was in torment and Lazarus was in bliss? And Jesus uses that to illustrate what happens when we die. Do you get a sense that at our physical death, there is this going to be with the Lord or not? Um, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that when we're away from the body as believers, we're in the presence of the Lord. So, so when is this judgment and why? Well, Revelation 20 says that when... The Christ returns, when he returns, there is an opening of the book of life and a reading of the book of life and all those whose names aren't in the book of life are condemned ultimately and for eternity and all those whose names are in the book of life, that is believers, will be with him forever. The end of time. So why do we have to go through that? Well, we do. But the good news is what's to follow. Notice Hebrews 9, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see, Jesus, when he comes the second time, isn't going to deal with sin in the sense that he dealt with it the first time. He's already put that away. He's already dealt with There's nothing that can be added to the work of Christ other than what he's done. It's done. It's settled. He died for the sins of sinners. He bore their sins. And when he comes the second time, I would expect the author of Hebrews to say he comes the second time to judge. I mean, after all, he just said, for it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. So Christ will come a second time to judge. He didn't say that. Why? Because he's trying to give you and me comfort. Because you see, when Jesus comes back the second time, even though there's a judgment, he's coming for us even then. He's coming as the judge. And he's going to judge our sins forgiven. And he's going to judge our works apart from those forgiven sins as righteous. As a reflection of our faith in him. And so he's saying, don't be afraid. 
It is appointed unto you once to die. But remember, Christ has taken the stinger out of that. And even when judgment comes, and even in those last, that last day, when judgment comes, don't worry, because he's coming back to save you. He'll take care of it. Whatever needs to happen on that day will happen on that day. Uh, just for you and just for me. If we're numbered among those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, that's an interesting expression. I wouldn't expected that one either. I would have expected him to say, to save all those who believe in him. That would have been a little easier. Would have matched up with John 3.16 really nicely. Um, but he doesn't. He says those who are eagerly waiting for him. Well, who are those? Well, first, it should be true for all believers. All believers, we should all be eagerly awaiting for the return of Jesus. Now, I must confess that there are some days that I'm eagerly re- awaiting the return of Jesus. I want him to come back. 